Hey everybody and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. I'm James and back with me today I have Henry and Belle from the Somex team. How are you guys doing? I'm doing well, thank you James. <laughs> Good week, nice bank holiday. I like the pretense of this is that we haven't already just spoken for an hour this morning on a team call. <laughs> like, <laughs> literally, the call before yeah. this is... We talk about our wins of the week, we talk about how the week's been, we look at next week, and then all we have to say in conclusion on this is, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've done all this. <laughs> we've already gone down any wormhole we could possibly. Today's wormholes were particularly... Wormy. They were very wormy. <laughs> they were particularly, particularly wormy today. Uh, let's not go into it again, actually. <laughs> let's, just, let's just leave those wormy wormholes. Oh, it's a good start. Uh... On to story number one. So story number one this week, a study has been done in NPJ Digital Medicine, which is part of Nature, uh, that symptom checkers diagnostic triage accuracy is low. Uh, A bold statement, a factual statement based on the study. Uh, Henry, you've read this. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, it's a really nice summary by Moby Health News as well. So they've basically looked at 10 different studies across 40, 50 odd uh, symptom checkers, online symptom checkers, Um, half of them using actual patients, half of them using simulated patients, which I quite like the idea of, Um, and then found that the diagnostic accuracy or like the where the correct diagnosis come through first, the range was 19% to 38%, which is... Well, I don't know about you both, but that's a lot lower than I would have expected. Like even the top threes diagnosed, diagnostic accuracy topped out in of across the seven studies that included those top three topped out fifty eight percent. That feels low to me. I wonder. So how did they test that? Do you know? Do you know if they did they pick did they pick I don't know diseases and and mimic those symptoms and just see? I mean, I imagine they probably standardised it in some way like that. But then <laughs> if you like, it depends what. Sounds like diseases they've uh, gone for. If it's like West Nile virus or something and really challenged it, I imagine they probably did get low percentages, but might be quite good in like a common cold sort of range. I don't know. Oh, don't do that to me. I don't know. I heard that on actually Scrubs the other day or something. Like, I don't even know if that's a real thing. <laughs> you can just Scrub. hear Henry's brain whirring from yeah. West Nile-based puns at this point. Yeah. So actually... On the subject of my brain whirring, I did try and read the full study where it goes through the methodology, which is what you've just asked me about. Now, I did a journalism and English lit degree and got uh, my lowest of my GCSE marks was science. So I got about three sentences in and my brain melted. Um, So I can't tell you. I cannot tell you what the methodology was. However, NPJ Digital Medicine, uh, the study is is public, so you can go in and have a look. But I, I just thought really worth including because... There is, there's lots of chatter, there's lots of investment, there's lots of companies out there doing, um, you know, digital triage. And it's really interesting to me that, you know, the results that an independent study has found are significantly lower than you see, well, than I've seen reported elsewhere. Do you think that's because patients have a tendency to underplay their own symptoms? Hmm. I wonder if there are patients who underplay and patients who overplay, though, and that that, mm. narr- that balances it down, you know, balances it out. You get... You often hear with like GP receptionists that people have sort of um, learnt to try and game the system by exacerbating the seriousness of their symptoms when they're speaking to 
those receptions whose job it is to triage people into the right place. So I wonder if, yeah, there's there's going to be a cohort who do under and there's going to be a cohort who do over. So I don't know. It's a, it's a really good point there. It's interesting in the context of last week as well. We talked about UB uh, raising, what, 20-odd, 30-odd million uh, symptom checking. 26. 26, yeah. I mean, s- symptom checking stuff. And you obviously tested that and N equals 1 in your study, but it was one of those where it was interesting, <laughs> the results of your N equals 1 study. Well, yeah, they, they thought I might have a brain tumour, which I haven't got checked out, which is bad, particularly if I'm getting on plane on Monday and going on holiday. So um, hopefully don't get sick in the USA. Not a place I'd want to be ill. Expensive place to be ill. Also, you don't want, you know, Elvis to be the one to have to deal with you. <laughs> now, you're going to have to explain that because you can't just drop Elvis in and that's just going to sound really weird. Weirdly, you can't just drop Elvis in. You have to explain that is exactly what my mum said when I told her that uh, my partner and I were getting married by a fat bloke dressed as Elvis. You can't just drop Elvis into your wedding. Uh, so, yeah, I'm getting, getting Actually, married. Actually, mum, I think you'll find I can. And it only costs two hundred dollars. So uh, I'm, I will be uh, I will be getting married uh, in a couple of weeks in Las Vegas because I'm I'm a classy guy uh, by a um, a rotund gentleman dressed as uh, late era Elvis. In a drive-through, <laughs> absolutely love it. Yeah, important health tech news. This uh, what, a, <laughs> what a great, what a great podcast. <laughs> oh, if there are any, well, everyone's left. wondering. Everyone's wondering about Henry. He of course, of course they are. Know why. Of course they are. Um, if there are any listeners left, we're uh, we're going to go on to story number two. Right, story number two. Uh, University hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire have installed a robot surgeon. (laughs) Just reading Henry's thing that he's printed in the newsletter here. An update to their existing robot surgeon. Will the old robot fight back? Stay tuned for Transformers 4, (laughs) University hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire. Uh, Right, okay, I'm going to explain this. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) please do. What happens to old robot surgeons when they're no longer needed? Because you can't chuck it in a skip because someone will steal that and that's the plot of a Bond film. Is, it, uh, is this not just the plot of, like, Wally? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> if Wally had been set in Coventry. Um, I don't know. I'm like, will will the old robot, you know, join a union and fight back and try and keep its job? It's it's There's all to play for and it's exciting to watch. <laughs> all bets are hedged. <laughs> <laughs> Belle, what's actually happening? <laughs> well, I mean, apart from the uprising of apart, of the, apart from obviously the uprising of the robotic Da Vinci machines, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, love that they're called Da Vinci as well because that's I, I think exactly what Leonardo Da Vinci was hoping for when he was designing all those things <laughs> to do kidney surgery on the people of Coventry. <laughs> so yes, um, no, it's very very cool news out of Warwickshire NHS Trust. Um, They've, as Henry said, installed a new robotic surgical system. They've already got one. Um, And this is to perform precise and advanced operations. So this varies from kidney operations, throat operations, all the little things that require skill. So the great thing about robotic surgery is it has many benefits. Um, It's more precise. It has higher magnification, so it can obviously see more than human eyes. And crucially, it can reduce surgical recovery and reduce hospital stays. And they're saying that it's reducing hospital stays by up to 60%, which is pretty incredible. Now, in the current climate, we've obviously got workforce shortages. We've got overburdened healthcare professionals. We've got ever longer waiting lists. So things like this is, you know, it's technology that is game changing. 
since 2013, where Warwickshire first brought in the Da Vinci, they've carried out one and a half thousand operations and they have completely cleared their two year waiting list, which is pretty sensational. And they're now working on clearing their entire surgical backlog. So, yeah, it's it's a pretty lovely example of tech working with surgeons rather than against them to both improve patient outcomes and enhance the level of care that both surgeons and healthcare teams can offer. Why is this not getting more, like if, if a trust can clear its entire backlog mm. and like, I'd say 50% of the headlines we're seeing in healthcare rather than health tech at the moment are backlog, the other 50% being workforce. If a trust has managed to clear its entire backlog and the health board in Scotland, NHS Highland, shared their experiences as well and they've cleared a huge amount of their backlog, Mm -hmm. what's the barrier to entry for other trusts? There's 132-odd acute trusts who could benefit from this. Does it cost? Yeah, they cost cost nearly 2 million quid each, I think. Yeah, they've received a 1.5 million grant to pay for this. So it's this expensive technology but what's i mean yeah but what's the what's the cost to healthcare systems to wider particulars we're meant to be moving into like ics led thinking here what's the wider cost to having thousands of people sat in your backlog yeah it's an inter- it's an interesting business case that i think i wonder how quickly you'd recoup that two million um and i suppose how quickly you'd recoup it genuinely cash in hand it, you know, they talked about a 60% reduction in hospital stay length. So what I'm assuming yeah. here is that because you can do more in a minimally invasive way, therefore your incisions aren't as big, therefore your recovery is quicker, you're also then going to reduce your complications and things like that. So it sounds like you're just getting that throughput just so much more efficiently. A 60% reduction in hospital stay, that's also... And again, you know, we talk about, yeah, it's huge. And we talk about these types of stories. Naturally, we tend to talk about them, especially the way they're reported, is that we we report them in kind of financial terms and the terms of, you know, reduced stay and recouping money and all these different things. Reducing the size of an incision and doing procedures in a minimally invasive way is actually an incredibly... a much more increased uh, amount of quality of care. That's what I'm trying to get at here is that like, look, let's not forget as well, you get a 2 million quid robot to help you with super magnification and do a tiny incision for patients. They're in and out the same day. Great. Yeah, there's a 60% reduction in hospital stay length. But actually that patient, there's a human being at the end of that, actually just feeling better and recovering quicker. And I think that's the thing with these types of stories. We all too easily start talking about the finances, but like, we need to start making a case for just the fact that it increases the quality of care, okay, as well. But <laughs> like that's also pretty important here. And even if you were to look at it from financial terms, like there's that person's individual finance of having to take extra days off work, yep. having to, I mean, we discussed this in our call this morning, having to pay for parking for a week in oh, hospital God. versus a, a one-day parking fee or whatever that might be. And then you've also got the fact that they're, family or carers or whoever that might be that's around to offer them support there's lesser time needed for them in terms of burden there so and it's yeah and like James you're completely right we you we do have to think about the person at the end of the robot but just to to bring it back to cost like Pulse did some work years ago maybe five six years ago to work out what the cost of a night in the NHS trust costs it's about 400 quid and that was maybe six seven years ago so inflation I don't know Let's say it still is 400 quid. Two million pound piece of machinery, 400 quid. You've only got to remove 5,000 patient nights across an entire trust a year to pay that back. 
that's not that sounds like a huge number of nights, but it's really not across all of the specialties that this kit can work in. I don't, it's yeah, a really lovely breakthrough, yeah. I suppose. And it's interesting. I'm just looking at this, and it's saying that their funding came from Coventry Hospital's charity. So, is there just a hesitancy on the investment for this technology that charities are having to step in and and say, well, actually, we think it's worth it? You know, obviously, when you go for a grant, you put forward a very good case for it. And we can see that the business case is there and will recoup very quickly. But that initial outlay is what scares people and puts them off. And if we're seeing hesitancy there, then we're going to fail to see those those outcomes that I think could be it's quite training helpful. as well. It's training the workforce as well. I imagine to in order to operate one of them. In fact, I know I've I've interviewed a robotic surgeon on my podcast. Like the 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 training that that is required. I mean, there is a significant amount of training that's required and things like that. And to train a generation of robotic surgeons and that kind of thing. But it seems like the direction of travel, if it's going to provide so much in terms of reward to the system and to those individuals. So when you say you've interviewed a robotic surgeon, Leonardo you mean a human, yeah, a human. Yeah, fourth generation Leonardo, the, uh, the fourth generation robot. Da Vinci X came on my podcast. Uh, yeah, it was cool. Yeah, it was cool. <laughs> <sighs> Doesn't get any more professional, this podcast, (laughs) does it? Honestly. Story number three. Right, story number three this week. Everyone loves a platform, especially biotech investors. Henry, what's going on with this one? So, biotech platforms. Um, I didn't know what a biotech platform was. Do, Do you guys have any idea? I think I could probably hazard a guess. I could pick one out of a crowd. Yeah, that's... A crowd of biotech innovations, a crowd of health tech innovations. I could pick a biotech platform out, I think. They regularly gather in crowds. Anyway, so I thought I'd have a little look into kind of biotech platforms just so so I was sure of my understanding of it. And A16Z, uh, the the massive VC firm, have got a really good article on it. The article that we're focusing on, though, everyone loves the platform, uh, is talking about how biotech investors are now looking for platforms that make things more replicable, more kind of applicable in different areas. You can move your biotech innovations to different parts of the world, different parts of the country, and repeat the same processes. And what's interesting about that is how this will affect valuations and things like that. So the A16Z article makes this great point that traditionally biotech firms, their value has been ascribed to their therapeutic products, like their assets, um, not the platforms and the processes which build those And what the um, Crunchbase article is arguing is that now various different venture capitalists and and investment firms are looking at how you can make those assets more readily replicable. So the platform. Um, I think that's a really, really interesting kind of way of looking at things because so we've seen with people like Ori Biotech that, you know, they have a brilliant replicable process that they can move around the US at the moment and, and hopefully around the world. So that. Obviously, they got that hundred million pound, hundred million dollar valuation earlier this year. That makes them significantly more attractive, you would think, to VCs because they've managed to create a process, not just an asset. I think that's a, that's a fascinating kind of almost about face from the investment community. I suppose the what's going to be interesting is when the next round of big biotech uh, investment rounds come through to see what what investors are actually valuing, what whether it is the process or the asset. Um, I look forward to seeing. And so we're not too serious about this one. Just to a quick, quick little mention of Henry's joke again that he's put into Pigeon this week. The top three groups who love a platform, train station architects, biotech investors, and the Bee Gees he's put in there. That's not a joke. That's just factual. What's your favourite platform? 
Platform three, Bristol Temple Meads, uh, takes me to London and I'm deposited back from London there on a, on a semi-regular basis. It's lovely. It's got a West Cornish pasty shop, a Starbucks and a small independent coffee retailer whose name I can't remember and who makes reasonably OK coffee. <laughs> nice. You've gone, this, gone the train route. I mean, I'm five foot five. So my favourite platform is one that can give me a bit of height. With the BG nice route. Lift. lift. Yeah. Strong. Exactly, the BG route. I mean, ultimately, (laughs) if I could just channel the BGs, I'd be pretty happy. And that was story number three. (laughs) Hero Biotech raises $1.9 million seed round for non-surgical endometriosis test. Belle, tell us about this one. All right, so... This, I mean, this is an amazing, amazing piece of news and an absolute game changer for women's health. Endometriosis is the second most common gynecological condition in the UK. It affects two to 10 in every 100 women. Um, And for those people affected, it's incredibly painful. It can lead to really severe period pain, chronic pelvic pain, chronic back pain. Um, And if, if led, you know, led to kind of do what it wants to do, it can even lead to infertility and problems associated with that. So it's a pretty horrific thing. Um... For people to get and there's no cure people are prescribed painkillers often very strong ones that can then lead to stomach upset and all sorts of things there you can have operations to remove the tissue so endometriosis is when kind of your womb lining tissue grows outside of your womb so it's responsive to the hormones that cause a womb to shed um, but obviously there's nowhere for it to go so you end up with you know internal bleeding inflammation it's, it's pretty horrific um, So you can have an operation to remove that tissue, but that doesn't stop it necessarily from coming back. That growth might continue. Um, And ultimately, the only kind of real way to kind of ensure that it won't come back is to get a hysterectomy, which seems pretty, pretty intense. Um, Now, even though this is, you know, it's a horrible, horrible condition and it's pretty prevalent amongst, you know, people with wombs, but it's incredibly difficult to get diagnosed. On average, it takes seven and a half years for people to get diagnosed with endometriosis, which in addition to being like really physically debilitating can be really emotionally and mentally challenging as well, because it requires a lot of, you know, it requires a lot of self-advocacy when you're going to the GP again and again and again, trying to work out, you know, what is wrong with me? And it's it's got kind of complicated set of symptoms, which can be um, mistaken for IBS, for pelvic inflammation, for other things as well. So it, it takes a really long time to get there. And currently, the only way to be sure if a person's got endometriosis is to carry out um, laparoscopy surgery, which, you know, can cause complications on its own. So here are Biotech's non-surgical diagnostic tests. It will dramatically improve lives. It's similar to a smear test, which whilst not my fave, is obviously preferable to surgery. Um, And then it uses kind of microfluidic technology to sort of definitively diagnose whether a person has endometriosis. So it will cut down the time to diagnosis. It will help people have clarity on what the health condition is. And whilst there is no cure, it will help them take steps to improving their quality of life. So absolutely incredible and great to see these sort of figures being invested into this as well, because it's a huge, huge problem for women's health. And um, as we said, you know, before this call, like 10 years ago, people weren't really even aware of this. Um, And it's amazing to see that not only has that knowledge increased so much in the last year, but people are realising that it's something that needs to be solved. And there are now tech, um, there is now tech, and there are people that are really willing to focus on that problem. So yeah, great news. 
There's a really interesting study that we've also linked to, which is from DOI, which is about endometriosis being undervalued. And that's a really weird bit of framing to put into it and to talk about like the value of a problem. But it's, you know, seeing that people are investing in this shows that the market is waking up to the value of treating the, I think it's 190 million worldwide people that suffer with this. So yeah, it's, uh, it's important that these these areas get as much funding as possible. Awesome. So 1.9 million in seed funding. They're going to use the funds to get an inpatient human clinical study done. They're going to expand their portfolio and they're going to support a regulatory pathway with the US FDA. So let's hope similar happens over this side of the pond. Right. On to our final story uh, this week. So our final story this week is that Psyomics have linked up with Hertfordshire University NHS Foundation Trust uh, to do some interesting stuff. Henry, tell us about this one. Yeah, it's another great win for Psyomics um, off the back of their excellent raise in Q2 earlier on this year. They've put together a really good team. They've just been joined by Dr. Melinda Rees, who is a consultant clinical psychologist and has been chief clinical officer and uh, kind of a very commercially minded clinical psychologist in various different big US and UK uh, health tech startups. So they're, they're building a great team. And this is their Psyomics as a platform. It's an evidence-based mental health assessment platform. Um, and it allows clinicians to have a much deeper, richer understanding of the patient's health and mental health specifically, but also all the other factors that influence that. So whilst a standard um, consultation might take an hour and you will get, a, you know, you'll scratch the surface and you'll start to see where problems might be arising from. Uh, by using Psyomics, you can have all that detail in advance. So you can already have the report in front of you. So you can say, okay, well, these are the things that are big red flags. These are the areas that I think we can work on. And that allows patients to get into the right treatment pathway significantly faster particularly in mental health. I think the average amount of time it takes for bipolar to be diagnosed is seven years. And in all other areas of mental health, the speed of diagnosis is always a problem. So the the ability for clinicians in Hertfordshire to have this piece of technology that allows them to be supported in their work is uh, what's game-changing for the mental health of people in Hertfordshire, I think. So yeah, 1.6 million people on the waiting list. Uh, 23% of all NHS sort of... Um, cases i suppose are mental health but only 11 percent of funding goes to mental health there are an estimated four people every week will one in four people every week will have a mental health episode of some sort and it is a rapidly growing backlog with a slow trickle of clinicians coming into the field yeah and therefore i think any support that those clinicians are getting is going to be extremely important isn't it and i think it does need the investment at this level when you're talking about whole regions. I did also think it was interesting that they provide, it says here, they provide NHS organisations with data sets that show mental health needs across an entire geography. Yeah, it, it, I think the investment needs to be at that kind of level. It needs to be whole areas that start doing this. It needs to become the norm. What, where there is a workforce that can't cope with the demand, you know, you mentioned there, you know, 1.6 million people on waiting lists the support just needs to be there however it however it can get there if we we can't train clinicians any sooner than you know years and so actually this is the type of area where technology is going to help and uh, you know in a way as as well i think it's nice that it's not 
it's not out here saying that it's going to absolutely, it's not a golden or silver bullet, right? It's, it's something that helps give clinicians information at a time where they need it. And it's going to make things better for those reasons. And uh, yeah, uh, the mental health crisis and uh, so many crises, isn't it? You sort of get like crisis fatigue, like talking about this stuff. Like, can everything be a crisis? Like it can't really, like where it kind of is. And we need to prioritize things and think about them in order and all these different things. But I don't know. Are you saying we're having a crisis crisis? Oh, he went there. Oh, well. You've done it. (laughs) Um, Just to add to James's point that like, I think what's also really interesting in mental health is obviously, as you've just said, kind of statistically, we've got these incredibly long waiting lists, but we know that people on lengthy waiting lists actually get worse in that time. So if we can speed up that time to actually getting the support that you need, it's going to actually mean that people are in a, in a better starting point when that when that moment comes rather than allowing them to, you know, potentially decline quite dramatically in that time as well with with the lack of any support. Yeah, there's some terrifying statistics out there around the the decline in people who've got to the point where they realise they need help, exactly. they need assessment, and to that that gap between realising and actually getting treatment is is one of the hardest periods for people who need. And it's all, it's also like to the point about endometriosis earlier. It's it's another part of the medical system which requires a lot of self-advocacy you've got to really be pushing for it and it's when you might mentally be in a place where you're not really equipped to be to be pushing and advocating for yourself and that's hard that's really hard if you need help and support and you are not mentally in a place where you can push for it yeah i totally agree and and that's a funny thing isn't it about early intervention i think where that's a physical condition you you know we can green and we can encourage people because they are dealing with that physical condition and if that's if that's a mental health condition and you're trying to encourage as you say self-advocacy in order to pick things up early it's that degree worse or more difficult or could provide even more challenges and perhaps in part where we are with uh with mental health and the waiting list and, and everything but here we go, Symex, one of the companies doing some great work here. Um, and we wish them all the best in Hertfordshire. Right, so thanks for listening, everybody. That was the week's news in health tech. We had a robot uprising. Uh, the BG's symptom checker's still not working. Lots of arguably interesting stuff in this week's health tech. If you want to grab any of the links to those stories or you want to get the newsletter every single week, you can head to www.healthtechpigeon.com. Uh, if you want to get any of us you can catch us on linkedin those links will be in the description of this episode uh thanks for joining we'll see you next week 